all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 344 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the archive of Stefan G. Butcher episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there is an ever-expanding archive of work by designer, illustrator, and writer, Stefan G. Butcher, or Bucher, or Bucker, because it's B-U-C-H-E-R, and it is called, and I, I'm not joking, 344lovesyou.com. And with that wonderful little bit of archive knowledge, I have Gorse and Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. 344lovesyou.com. <laughs> I, I knew. See, I have two special tabs. One so that I could tell you what it was and the actual place so I could act, so we could look at it together. Yeah, I pulled it up and I still don't know what it is. I got nothing, brother. I, I mean, it's like all sorts of really crazy stuff. Yeah, I see some Blue Man Group, a Yeti. <laughs> Apparently, you can only. The, it's called the Saks Fifth Avenue Yeti. Uh, and this is Tim. Yeah. How are you doing, Matthias Del Matthew? You know. I'm I'm doing all right, doing all right. We, uh, as we alluded briefly to last week, I am I am finally embarking on a new, on a new journey, um, which means that I kind of have uh, two jobs at the moment, but we'll soon be down to one, and just dealing with stuff, bouncing back and forth between that has proved to be interesting. Um, but uh, you know, we're doing well. The the significant other has a birthday tomorrow. And, um, I, so I'll be looking forward to doing a little, some fun stuff with that. We're going to grab the kidlets, um, and, and sneak off and get some stuff to make a cake. And then I will be taking her out to dinner and then the kidlets will be making said cake. And then after dinner, we'll come back and, uh, do dessert and cake and stuff. And, uh, that's. That's kind of the day tomorrow. So the kidlets aren't going to dinner. Like, they're not going to be able to eat until after they make a cake worthy enough for Yes, basically. Yeah, I mean, and we're going high end here. I mean, I, I, I haven't really decided between the two top of the line cakes of Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker. But um, they will get a box of that. Apparently, the cake of choice for the wife is... Funfetti cake. Easy. It's easy to make, yet too easy to make. Therefore, easy mistakes can be made. And to make it worse or better or however, to make, I guess to make it uh, more difficult, they can't hide mistakes because she doesn't like icing on it. No frosting, no icing. It's just going to be the cake. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Right? <laughs> I... I thought it was weird, but you know what? It's not my birthday, so we just do what the birthday girl wants. I mean, isn't that the point of the Funfetti cake, Mm. to mask the taste of the cheap cake? (laughs) Well, see, I thought that the fun of the the Funfetti cake was to slather it in frosting so that you got the bonus of this really colorful, you know, Funfetti 
poppy stuff inside the case. You're like, oh, wow, fun cake. And then you open it up and you cut it open and you take a piece out. And you're like, oh, wow, now it's all colorful on the inside too. That's what I thought the fun was. But apparently, no, it's just to have the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Muy interesante. Muy interesante. Indeed. But all is well in your neck of the woods, sir. Everything is going well. Uh, For those of you who follow the show on Twitter, uh, lately, for the past couple years, I've been kind of Tim handling the Twitter. I almost said manhandling the Twitter, but or our Twitter account, but that, I would think, comes across pretty weird. Uh, But maybe Tim handling is either better or or weirder. I don't know. Uh, But I went and saw... The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood flick, again, but this time around at the New Beverly Cinema, the Tarantino-owned movie theater. If you are familiar with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the scene when Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, is going to go eat at at El Coyote, she looks over and there's the, the spotlights. Uh, at the porno movie theater down the street, and she goes, "Oh, what's going on at the Dirty Movie? Is there a is there a, a premiere or something? I didn't realize Dirty Movies had premieres." Well, that's the movie theater that Quentin Tarantino owns. It used to be a vaudeville theater, and used to be a Dirty Movie theater, and now it's just like a fun grindhouse theater. But I uh, went and ate at El Coyote beforehand, went and saw it, and I posted a couple pictures on the SLS Cast Twitter, and it it just kind of goes to show. How dumb social media is. I mean, it's great when people interact and follow and uh, and and retweet and and follow. Uh, you know, and, and and just interact with us, I suppose. Um, but we received the most freaking likes from 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 a from a picture of my enchiladas of glass of glass bottles <laughs> <laughs> on a window and my nasty ass thumb <laughs> holding holding a ticket that says admit one yeah I-, I was so proud to be like number 105 i'm like what the hell the boy did this take off holy crap yeah it was like as soon as the new beverly retweeted it the theater retweeted it it's just all of a sudden like right before the movie it's like 40 likes 50 it was just ridiculous so i don't know what i think about Social media, humanity, it's, it's just very interesting. Well, hey, whatever gets us the exposure, sir. The true exposure would be to check out our show on the SLScast.com, on Spotify, or any other podcast directories out there. In Rooney. Or send us an email. I- I'd take that. Actually, in all fairness to email action, I suppose I should maybe check it. Because I was bad and I didn't check it last week. So, so why don't we just take a moment and see and see what see what there is, if anything. Uh, we could check it during news. We could. We could check it during news. The problem being, I've already started. <laughs> it's already here. Hey, look! There's an email! <laughs> Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Yay! Oh, yes. Congratulations. Oh, it was a congratulations in it. And it uh, had confetti. Not funfetti, but actual confetti come out of the thing. Yes, here we go. And, of course, oh, it, oh, every time I hover the mouse over the word congratulations, confetti pops out. It's amazing. Okay. Here's, and of course, it is from our favorite listener, Diana. 
Oh, nice. And the subject line is, welcome back. It says, hi, guys. First off, congratulations, Tim, on your marriage. May your merger get better every year. And she says, now, Matt, can I give you four cyber beers to have you reveal the four words of your groom of, of your groomsman speech that made the theatrical cut? <laughs> and she's plugged in four beer emojis. She says, okay, good to hear you guys back in the here and now. Cheers, Diana. Um, okay. So it, it, we, we did actually tell you what the, what the four words were. Um, so if you go back and listen carefully, they, they will be there. But I totally understand if you don't want to do that. And so I'm just going to leave this here. I have a cat. That, that's all I can tell you. The, the rest will have to come out over time. And, <laughs> and director's cuts and extended viewings or what have you. Um, but yes, we're so glad to be back and we actually have some fun stuff planned for next week too already because Tim and I were brainstorming. So I can't wait to get to that. But in order to do that, in order to do that, we must get to our news. Isn't that correct, Tim? That is correct. If you would like to send us an email, just like Diana did, please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And without further ado, it's the news. And first up, not from me, because I only have one piece of news, is from Tim. Tim, what would you like to talk about first? Okay, how about stunt performers? Via Vulture.com, it's time for a Best Stunts Oscar. This here is an article written by Bilge Abiri, B-I-L-G-E, Abiri, E-B-I-R-I, and it was published at 8 a.m. on Monday, August 12th published or posted whichever one works for you and it says this believe it or not it was all Sidney Lumet's idea in 1991 while working on a stranger among us the legendary director of network dog day afternoon and 12 angry men wondered aloud to a stunt coordinator Jack Gill why there was no Oscar category for stunt work when Gill had no answers for him Lumet decided the first step would be to sponsor him for membership in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. There, uh, there Gill learned that in order to be considered for an Oscar category, he'd first need to have a stunts branch established, then get enough members in that branch to potentially vote for nominations in the category. AMPAS higher-ups told him the process, quote, could take as long as three or four years, end quote. And that was 28 years ago. Gill is still trying to get the Oscars to recognize stunts, which is a bit surprising when you consider that during that time, one, the film industry has become completely dominated by action movies, which are heavily reliant on stunts, and two, the Oscars have struggled with decreased viewership and an increased sense of irrelevance, as evidenced by their occasional attempts to find ways to honor more big blockbusters. 
you would think the Academy's Board of Governors would have put two and two together by this point and establish a best stunts category. But no. Quote, when I first approached them, they were extremely eager to help. End quote. Gill says, quote, as the years went on, they got tired of me. Now it's hard to even get a meeting. End quote. Oscar's cold shoulder notwithstanding, there has always been a whiff of romance around the figure of the Hollywood stuntman. Quote, throw him off a building, light him on fire, hit him with a Lincoln. He's just happy for the opportunity, end quote. Leo DiCaprio's weathered actor Rick Dalton says of his easygoing stunt double Clint Booth, played by Brad Pitt in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and this movie, of course, marks yet another entry in the director's ongoing fascination with stunt people. In one of the film's more touching scenes, we see the poverty in which Cliff lives. In a cluttered, run-down trailer, eating instant mac and cheese, in sharp contrast to his movie star boss and friend. It's a sly acknowledgement that Cliff pretty much does everything, yet sees few of the upsides. Even at the end, spoiler alert, after the carnage of the finale, we see Cliff being taken away in an ambulance while Rick reaps the uh, excuse me while Rick reaps not reaps reaps the benefits of his actions and appears to get a newfound lease on his floundering career. Nowadays, we are a bit more of the people, uh, excuse me, nowadays we are a bit more aware of the people who crash cars and fall out of planes and get beaten and broken for our entertainment. We marvel at the highly coordinated carnage of the John Wick movies, the automotive antics of the Fast and Furious series, and the all-around how-did-they-do-that-insanity of the Mad Max Fury Road. Stories about the doubles on these sets go viral, as does behind-the-scenes footage of all the crazy shit they've had to do. Stunts are even used to market these pictures. The Mission Impossible franchise has been sold to us largely on the power of its real-life stunts. And while it's Tom Cruise, movie star, doing them, who do you think makes sure that Tom Cruise doesn't break his neck? Quote, Tom Cruise himself is basically an amazing stuntman, said, uh, end quote, says Janine Carlton, who has worked with the actor on Jack Reacher and Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. She also has done Pirates of the Caribbean and Planet of the Apes movies and has doubled everyone from Jennifer Aniston, or excuse me, Jennifer Lawrence to Kate Winslet to Jessica Biel. Quote, there are a handful of actors that do like to do their own stunts, but they still have a stunt team that designs the action, rehearses it over and over again to determine what looks the coolest, what hurts the most, what's the safest. They train the actor for months, and even if the actor does it, the double does it as well, so they can edit it together. The stunt coordinators are responsible for keeping everyone safe. End quote. Uh, and the article does go on for quite... A bit more, but I'm pretty sure you get the gist. Um, personally, I don't think having uh, a, a, an Oscar category for stuntmen will 
amp up the viewership of the Oscars, but personally, I think it would be a lovely addition to the Academy Awards, and it would very much like how we see the uh, you know the nominated songs being performed. Maybe we can see how some of these stunts are performed live on stage, even. Um, so that could be some cool, neat things to actually see during the the ceremony. Um, what do you think about this, Matt? I agree that the likelihood of seeing something for stunts is um, next to nothing. But I think it, I, I think it really could be done, um, and it wouldn't be very difficult either. I think you could just create a category, and I would list it as best overall stunts, not the best stunt, not not even stunt man, stunt woman, anything like that. <clears throat> what I think would be uh, the best way to do it would be to have a best overall stunts category so that you know movies with the best coolest number of stunts in there are the ones that get nominated and again these would probably be more of your you know air quotes popcorn flicks more of your you know big bigger budget tent poles um so that we can appreciate it from a different perspective but that the award would go to like the chief stunt coordinator uh, it doesn't go to the director, not even the second unit director. It would literally be like the, the chief stunt coordinator who could then, you know, if they know they've been nominated, they could take their, you know, top four or five stunt people and bring them up so that they can get that exposure too. Uh, you, so this way you're getting to see some movies that you may or may not have otherwise gotten to see be nominated. You don't have to deal with that whole popcorn, you know, award kerfuffle from last year. You're acknowledging something that is very important to the industry and it goes to someone, it would go to someone who's deserving of it that can then increase the profile all the way around the board for stunt men and stunt women. I, you could do it. I just don't, see that they would which is a shame and why do you think we haven't seen a category for stunts i really think it's because they i don't think that they mean it to come across as this way but i feel that people would consider it and again i know you can't see it air quotes a lesser category um and i think that if I think they're worried that if they let one, air quotes, lesser category in, then they open the floodgates to, well, I think we should have, uh, you know, best PAs. I think we should have best catering. I think we should, you know, and it just, and I think that's what they are worried about. I think it's a stupid thing to be worried about. Um, I also think that they have been dealing with time issues for years now and adding categories is probably not the way to solve those time issues but i just i don't see how this would be anything other than a win-win i think it's an easy way to get the larger tent poles in on a higher basis uh, and a more regular basis to increase that viewership i think if you give it to the stunt coordinator uh as the winner then you're not just giving it to the same people over and over again. And I think that they would be able to use that as a platform to increase the visibility of the stunt of some people. I don't see how that's bad at all. I don't think so either. And what are we, what are we, what are we adding really when it's all said and done, you know, four minutes, I'm sure we could find that somewhere. Right. Again, like all these blockbuster movies, that's what's making up the box office intake you know, all year round, year round. I mean, they need stunts in Star Wars. 
not just Marvel movies. Fast and Furious, they need freaking stunts. Car stunts. (laughs) So... It's a very fascinating article. Um, again, it was via Vulture.com. It's time for a Best Stunts Oscar, written by Bilge Abiri. Uh, it does talk about the possibility of the reason why... Um, uh, it, the possibility that social class is an issue as to why we haven't seen a category for Best Stunt Work. Uh, because stunt work, especially back in the day, that was looked at as grunt work. I mean, people had a people had to sign blood oaths promising they weren't going to sue the film or sue the production company sure. if they lost their life or something horrible happened to them. But it's very interesting, and it, and it is, in fact, a meaty article, so I do recommend it to all you folk. Well, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and do my uh, piece of news here. And it is from TheGuardian.com by way of Catherine Shord. And it is Sarah Silverman. I was fired from film after blackface photos photo resurfaced. Yeah, basically, here's what's up. Sarah Silverman has said, uh, uh, Catherine writes, Sarah Silverman has said she was recently fired from a film after producers unearthed a still of her in 2007 wearing blackface for a comedy sketch. Guesting on the Bill Simmons podcast, Silverman said that she was let go the day before shooting on her scenes was due to start because of the photo taken on the set of the Sarah Silverman show. She said, quote, I recently was going to do a movie, A Sweet Part. Then at 11 p.m. the night before, they fired me because they saw a picture of me in blackface from that episode. End quote there. She continues, quote, I didn't fight it. They hired someone else who was wonderful, but who has never stuck their neck out. It was so disheartening. It just made me real, real sad because I really kind of devoted my life to making it right. End quote. Now, the idea here is that she did a she did a bit on her show then it was turned into and stills of this blackface bit from her show in which she is using the egregiousness of racism as its own mocking of racism and that's kind of the the impetus behind the sketch well stills of that ended up getting out there and she used one on Twitter years and years ago. And these are the stills that are now coming out without context. And so this is what's landed her in hot water. And she, and the, and it closes here in 2015. She called it her most quote, regrettable joke end quote, yet said criticism of the image was based on a lack of information. Quote, there's still, there's a still of me on Twitter in blackface and it's totally out of context and I tweeted it when Twitter was new and the people who followed me watched that show and it was from that show. Now it's forever there and it looks, it's totally racist out of context and I regret that. And all quotes in the article there. So she is definitely very upset that this is now getting to the point where people are so indignant and so uh inherently believing of their righteousness that if they find anything anything at all that could be construed or would be indicative of anything people would find politically incorrect or offensive well now we must cancel everything out and you're never allowed to do anything ever again um now as we've seen with our guardians of the galaxy kerfuffle for volume three it is possible to bounce back from that, but I think that Silverman has a point. It's that context either matters or it doesn't. 
And you have to make that distinction and you've got to stick to it. If context doesn't matter, then nobody should ever be allowed to say anything offensive or politically incorrect or racist ever again, period. But then what kind of world would we live in? Forget anything, freedom of speech, forget any of that. What kind of lame-ass world would we live in? So we have to understand that context matters. This is why we can see television shows that deal with these things, that we can see movies, we can see comedic sketches, we can see people discussing things and bringing egregiousness to light so that we can know it and combat it. I don't, and, and it just irritates the piss out of me. And don't, I'm not a super huge Sarah Silverman fan. So it's, but she is 100% right. You cannot have this righteousness overriding everything. Context has to matter. And I know Tim, you'd said you'd kind of, you'd already kind of heard about the situation. What are your thoughts on it? I'm not surprised. I, I'm very interested in knowing what movie it was that she was up for or about to start in. It's scary. I mean, I'd like to think that I was always conscious about the things that I posted or said, put out there in the past to make sure I don't offend anybody. I, I always made sure that I said it in a way that it was relevant to a discussion that we were having or it was satirical. It's... I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, like, like, I don't yourself. want to say anything about me. <laughs> well, no, but that's the whole thing. Absolutely. An example that I have, and this is what I learned and where I, when I realized that there is an issue. And there was a time when I felt that this was mainly an issue with the far right, ultra conservative and ultra religious folk. Uh, for example, like you take Monty Python's The Life of Brian Jesus is being crucified and and what's his name starts singing always look on the bright side of life. You <laughs> know, title. I think it's funny because there is a joke there and there it's it's irony. Yet at the same time the character of Brian is actually a good character and the story is actually or in the film is actually saying some very interesting things, but right off the bat, oh no, this is awful. They automatically go towards a sacrilegious thoughts opposed to putting the entire film into context or even putting that scene into context and maybe looking at it like, you know, they actually shot this tastefully. <laughs> it's not grotesque. It's not dumb. These are a bunch of smart people behind the making of this film. They have something to say, and I actually think they're saying it pretty well. People just love to get pissed off about the things they are passionate about when people are going against that passion of theirs. And with race relations and with, uh, with the Me Too movement, uh, we are seeing that happening a lot more now with other different things that, that weren't really put in that same category maybe 10, 12 years ago or so. I mean, the same thing happened. I have a family member who uh, went through PTSD, and I posted a Mel Brooks video from the history of the world, the Nazi rap, I think it's what it's called, but it's Mel Brooks dressed as Hitler rapping about the Nazi party. It is so ridiculous that who could actually take that seriously? Well, I pissed off a lot of family members 
because they thought it was out of disrespect for our troops, the U.S., disrespect for the Jews. Did they know who Mel Brooks was? <laughs> Probably not. But it's just this weird, I, I'm stating the obvious here, the gray line. You know, there's no gray line. The line is gone. Now everything is kind of coming together and you just really can't tastefully joke. Like people don't realize you could tastefully joke about something or tastefully satirize something and you could not tastefully satirize something, if that makes sense. And regardless of its tastefulness, I guess tastefulness, there was room for both. There was, there, there was, and while tastelessness has always been, you know, considered as such and thus lower in forms of entertainment, there are people who would gravitate to that. And so there was always at least some kind of room for discussion, the, the room to give something a spectrum. Uh, and now, I just, uh, that's gone. It's sad. But I suggest you definitely read this for yourself again, theguardian.com by way of Catherine Shord. Sarah Silverman, I was fired from film after blackface photo resurfaced. Well, I'm going to end the news with a little Movie Pass news. Remember that old friend of ours, Movie Pass? Yes, via techspot.com, insiders say Movie Pass changed account passwords to slow down power users. Uh, it also allegedly cut off ticket sales daily, telling subscribers that no more screenings were available, written by Cal Jeffrey, and it was posted um, Monday, August 12th at 1.28 p.m., and it says this, A hot potato! It's been no secret that theater-going subscription service MoviePass has been struggling since its founding. Recent reports from insiders indicate that the company was in a lot more trouble than it publicly indicated and stooped to, uh, and stooped to some underhanded tactics to keep the company from going under. According to a Business Insider investigative report, shady operations were happening over the last two years at the temporarily shuttered theater subscription company MoviePass. Some of the shenanigans include changing users' passwords without notice and setting up a tripwire to cut off ticket sales under false pretenses. Multiple former employees stated MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe and parent company Helios and Matheson Analytics CEO Ted Farnsworth reported to questionable business practices to keep the struggling company afloat. Not reported to, but resorted to questionable business practices. One of those tactics was to try to limit viewing during times of blockbuster releases like Avengers Infinity War and Mission Impossible Fallout. Lowe allegedly issued an order to have the passwords of, quote, a small percentage of power users, end quote, changed just before those films released. They would later tell the public it was due to a, quote, technical issue, end quote. Another shady practice exposed by the insiders was the use of a tripwire that was set to halt ticket sales whenever the company hits a specific daily monetary limit. When sales reached this threshold, users attempting to purchase tickets through the app would receive a message saying, quote, there are no more screenings at this theater today, end quote. Of course, this message was utterly untrue. It was just an attempt to stem the company's hemorrhaging cash flow. Uh, MoviePass and Helios initially hoped they would snag enough users who only went to the theater once a month to make up for those that went more often. 
However, one would expect that with a limit of one movie per day, or 30 per month, those buying subscriptions would want to make the most of their money. This business model resulted in an inordinately large number of power users who had to be slowed down some way, apparently by any means available, which eventually ushered co-founder Stacy Spikes out the door. Uh, and it goes on for a little bit more, but I'm going to end it right there. Again, insiders say MoviePass changed account passwords to slow down power users via techspot.com. Matt, are you ready just to cancel your AMC... Stubbs premiere membership and jump back over to MoviePass? <laughs> yes, right? Was that was, was that laugh good enough? <laughs> <laughs> I I read the so the TechSpot article I want to say came from they pulled uh from another article I don't know if it was Vanity Fair or if it was Variety or something like that, but I actually read the entire history of movie pass and um and it is fascinating all the crap I, i'm I'm so glad that uh we got out when we did and i feel bad for all the people who have who are still there even though i still see people uh on reddit um and there's like a dozen people who still say they get to see movies uh, so I guess good for them, but uh, it'll be nice to see if, uh, especially if Farnsworth, who apparently has had like 15 different companies end up as penny stocks, MoviePass just being the latest of these. So uh, I would like to see justice happen because there are a lot of people who legitimately did lose a lot of money, and I'm sure they would like to see something come of that oh 100 i thought something was shady back when we first started you or back when i first started using movie pass just how they were trying to brush things under like their social media to try to keep people involved and really you know you just knew that something was brewing you know shady 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 stuff glad to be over them let it die. All right. Well, then that does conclude this week's news segment. Next week, we're going to have um, a double bonus segment in lieu of a bonus segment and a flick segment. We're going to be doing a fun three squared next week. Where we're going to be kind of choosing government slash Big Brother movies. We're going to talk about some of our favorite uh, government slash Big Brother movies that are out there. And we are also going to have a second bonus segment that is going to be, was it worthy? And the was it worthy is going to be about 2000, okay, but between 2001 and 2007s, depending on how you want to look at it, shortcut to happiness. And the, the, what we are going to ask about was it worthy is, was this movie worthy? Of Alec Baldwin taking his name off the director's credit. So we'll get into that and talk about that next week and really kind of get those juices flowing. So you feel free to look up Shortcut to Happiness uh, over this next week and then you'll be able to play along at home as well. And so I think without further ado, it's now time to talk about some movies, is it not, sir? Let's talk about them. Here we go, folks. It's... The movie we we All right. 
Alright, well, this week's movies are Hobbs and Shaw, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Now, due to a whole bunch of things that had been happening over the week and weekend, and the sudden burst of social media fame that Tim experienced, uh, he was not able to see Hobbs and Shaw. So I'm going to go over Hobbs and Shaw right quick, and we'll do it now. The necessary shock to the system. I am human evolutionary change. Bulletproof. Superhuman. Who the hell are you? Bad guy. The mission has been compromised. We need help. Our target's name is Brixton. He's a ghost. We're gonna need the best trackers in the business. Luke Hobbs. I'm what you call an ice-cold can of whoop-ass. Career lawman always gets his guy. We're gonna need to operate outside the system. Deckard Shaw. I'm what you might call a champagne problem. Rogue former MI6 agent. Doesn't play well with others. If we stand a chance against Brixton, you guys have to work together. No, no way. way. This, this guy's, guy's a real ass. This job requires stealth. Look at you. I'm trying to save the world, which, for the record, will be my fourth time, because I'm really good at it. You have no idea what we're dealing with. Hobbs and Shaw. You want a war? You've got one. Remember me? Three shocks will kill a man. There we go. It's a bad guy's speech. You had to open your big mouth, didn't you, huh? Yeah, I thought it was a cool thing to say in the moment. All right, so it's a 2019 American action film, of course, directed by David Leitch, uh, written by Chris Morgan and Drew Pierce, and uh, it is the first official spin-off of the Fast and Furious franchise, and this, of course, is centered around Hobbs and Shaw, played by Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham, respectfully, respectfully, respectively. <laughs> I can't. I can totally talk. Um, basically, there is a virus out there called Snowflake, and it could be a decimated thing. And um, uh, Deckard Shaw, uh, played by Jason Statham, his sister uh, ends up escaping with this virus, and she uses herself as a carrier to get away from Idris Elba's Brixton lore, he plays this, like, super soldier kind of thing. And uh, and so she's now the carrier, and they need to get it out of her, and the only two ways they can do that is to kill her or to extract her. And thus is the race on. Can Hobbs and Shaw get this snowflake virus out of Shaw's sister, Hattie, and save the world, or will Idris Elba, uh, his character of Brixton lore, um be able to get to her first shenanigans ensue etc 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 people are grabbing helicopters off of cliffs <laughs> i don't really have a lot to say about this movie this it just accept the fact that this movie is literally a throwback to the heyday of the late 80s and early 90s the amazing action flicks you know think time cop think commando uh, think of all those amazing you know terrible terrible movies right above the law this is what these movies are for 
they they exist to scratch that itch, albeit in a PG-13 way instead of an R-rated way as they used to be. And it's fun just for that. It's not a good movie, but it is a fun movie. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Three stars. Um, and that's, that's it. So, um, I assure you, if you're not into it, you're not missing very much, but I would encourage you if it comes on on Netflix or Amazon, or if you are one of the five people who still subscribe and watch to cable, when it pops up in a few months on the old HBO or something, give it a watch. It'll be on. Just leave it on the background. You'll have fun. And last but not least, it leaves us with scary stories to tell in the dark. For years, the people in this town told lies about me. They locked me away, called me a monster. Now, they will get the monster they all deserve. Sarah Bellows' book. When the stories write themselves and it all comes alive. Who came up with all this sick stuff? The Jangling Man is coming. I'm afraid that we woke something up. Sarah Bellows is a myth. Do you know what you have done? You made her angry. You don't read the book. The book reads you. I'm afraid I'm gonna die down. So here we've got a 2019 American horror film. It's directed by Andre, and uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, Andre Overdahl, uh, based on the children's book series of the same name by Alvin Schwartz. Uh, This one is, of course, uh, Guillermo del Toro is involved in this uh, between the story and uh, a producer credit. And it stars uh, Zoe Coletti, Michael Garza, Gabriel Rush, Austin Abrams, Dean Norris, Gil Bellows, and Lorraine Toussaint. Um, this takes place back in 1968. Some teenagers uh, decide to get revenge on a bully. They pull a prank and they end up going through a local haunted house. And they find this secret room with papers and writings and stuff. Or, um, and... Then they end up getting trapped inside, but somehow a mysterious force lets them out. They end up being involved in the stories that are scary, and now they must survive and make it through. Shenanigans ensue. Here's your movie. Um, now, one of the people... Uh, let me just sum up this movie... And I, I found a, I found an amazing quote. One of my, uh, guys that I constantly refer to, or I guess not constantly, one of the guys that I have referred to in the past, uh, MI underscore 16 evil over at Reddit. He does a lot of box office stuff and, and does some good writing. He actually, uh, does guest features now on other websites as well. He, has a letterboxd account and so he has that available so people can peruse it uh and see what his thoughts are and he and i actually agreed on this film i don't like this movie very much uh there's just really not much to like because it's a great concept but it is and i get that it's based on a children's series but the children's series itself 
has a group of kids that have long since grown up. And I think it would have been really cool to go ahead and just feed into that and really amp up the scares. Now, I get that there are still kids today who read it, but eh, I don't care. Uh, I want my horror to be legitimate, and I want it to be scary, and I want it to be violent, and I want it to attack the senses. I think that's what good horror does, and this movie doesn't. And so, if you go to letterboxd.com slash vampire, uh, L-E-S underscore vampires, you will find his very wonderful review. <laughs> and it is as follows, quote, it's actually kind of impressive to be a terrible version of three films at once. It, paranormal, and goosebumps. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. Um, it tries so hard. Um, and I, I really even did like, I must say, I actually even kind of liked the red spot one. Um, but, it just, it, it tries too hard and doesn't succeed. And I think truly it is hampered by its PG-13 rating. Um, and I don't think movies like this are ever really going to be destined to succeed because they either have to play into the kid stuff, which is where I think the first Goosebumps movie did well, um, or you just have to let the kid stuff go and dive right in to give it some, to give it meat which makes it R-rated. So two stars for me. Tim, bring us home. What do you got? I, in some form or fashion, grew up reading the series of books. Uh, I remember going to the library and checking them out and just wondering, why did the school, influenced by all the Christian families around town, why was the school able to carry these books? In an elementary school, mind you, wasn't necessarily like gory you know the words being gory the stories being gory it's just heavily implied and that's even worse and also the book is backed by these illustrations that are incredibly creepy uh of course it's stephen gamel and the illustrations are so weird that when the books were re-released like seven or eight years ago or so, they brought in this other guy, Brett something, I can't remember his name, to come back in and make new drawings. So they were more kid-friendly, I guess. But I think that also goes to show how kids are different nowadays. People, you know, like, uh, we got away with a lot of stuff even in the early 90s, and our our early 90s uh, libraries got away uh, with multiple things. Clearly, I remember there being this other book called The White Merceds or something that talked about nipples and sex and all that stuff and prostitution. But scary stories to tell in the dark. I was looking forward to seeing this film because of my fondness of the books. Those books really shaped the way I look at horror storytelling. I knew early on that there were the slash and gore movies like Friday the 13th, Halloween, Screams. Um, I also knew there were the supernatural horror flicks like Poltergeist and classic horror flicks like Dracula and Psycho. The scariest of any of those films were always the classic films. 
And the classic films weren't really R-rated because they really didn't show much. Everything was implied. And reading these books, I had a crazy imagination, so I would create my own movie. So I had an idea. One of these days, it'd be so cool to make an anthology, like Trick or Treat, you know, Creep Show even, to bring all these stories together. So whenever I saw the first trailer for the film, Scary Stories Tell in the Dark, I was elated. I loved the look of the monsters. They definitely captured what I felt the tone of these stories. But I still thought that it was going to be more of an anthology. I didn't realize that they went in and found a way to, to put all these stories together. Little did I know that was actually one of the best parts of the film is seeing how they went about doing that. But the film itself succeeds as a scary flick geared towards kids. But it is too sluggish and repetitive for a seasoned horror enthusiast. I mean, there's a lot of long and drawn-out build-up for a payoff <laughs> that just happens too quickly. And I'm not just talking about the lead-up to the conclusion of the film, or even the third act, which does turn out to be, uh, spoiler alert, an annoying setup for a sequel. What really bothered me was the slow, slow, slow build-up to each monster reveal and the scenario that would pit these kids or one kid against one of these monsters. I mean, it really left me wanting more. You know that something is about to happen. Then you see the monster and then not much is really done with the monster. It's a little annoying in how they they structure the whole scene. You know, they do kind of play around with the tropes a little bit to kind of play around with the audience, but it's always a jump scare. Therefore, it's not about being terrified. It's all about cheap jump scares. So it becomes just a cheap gimmick. The flick does, however, utilize practical effects over CGI. 90% of the movie is practical effects, believe it or not. But what's the point of having practical effects when the audience doesn't spend enough time with the creatures. You know, a good example is the part with the Scarecrow, Harold. Uh, when Harold the Scarecrow is stalking the punk kid, uh, the kid's name is Tommy, in the cornfield. The flick spends plenty of time setting up Tommy's backstory, him being an asshole to the point of showing the audience that Tommy is willing to actually kill fellow students. So there are no redeeming qualities to Tommy. Therefore, the audience wants to see him receive his comeuppance. But do we see his comeuppance? We do, but it's not satisfying. The audience wants to feel the terror again from the monster. You do see Tommy transform into the Scarecrow in a series of quick cuts. And this also happens Every time something visually gruesome is about to uh, happen on screen, you know, it just starts making these quick cuts. So it becomes a little disorienting, like not disorienting, but it, it comes across as like, okay, we're going to quickly wrap this up just so you don't see the gruesome gore. And it makes the moment end soon after it actually began. And it's frustrating. Like, I don't know if maybe this was shot to be R-rated and then the studio saw it, a, a cut, or Del Toro saw a cut and thought, you know, maybe we should tone down some of these gruesome effects and violence because the story is still, you know, especially dark. It's a very dark story. 
you know, let, let's just cut around the visual terror to garner that PG-13 rating. That's kind of what it feels like, because any competent filmmaker would let something play out, because they let the build-up play out. And the movie's like an hour and 45 minutes long or so. It's freaking long. Benefited greatly if cut short by 20 minutes or so. They build everything out. The whole story of the Bellows family. My God, you hear the same crap over and over again. You know what's going to happen. But then when the juicy, meaty bits come onto the screen, they don't play out. It's frustrating. If this movie consisted merely as a series of vignettes that tied together at the end, again, a la Trick or Treat or Creep Show, I think this movie would have fared better. The meat of the story is definitely interesting how they brought all these scary stories together but then by the end of the film you realize they're just leading you on into the possibility of a next film therefore all the deaths do they really count probably not and therefore it devalues the film and the overall experience but i'm giving it a three out of five if you are a youngin who is very interested in becoming a horror fanatic, a horror enthusiast or whatever, you love horror movies, but you haven't been exposed to proper horror films, this is not a bad step. Parts of this movie are beautifully made, like the fat pale woman in the hospital. There were a couple shots that even creeped me out. They definitely did a few things correctly, and the practical effects definitely enhanced the effect. <laughs> Three out of five. Good for the youngins to check out. Very cool. All right. Well, then again, we're not going to have a proper flicks movie segment next week, uh, but we are going to be doing that double bonus uh, segment thing. So we are going to be having our three squared again of, you know, Big Brother slash government type movies. And uh, then we're also going to be doing a Was It Worthy for the film Shortcut to happiness. And again, we're asking whether or not it was worthy of Alec Baldwin taking his name off the director's credit. And so, I think it's now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing, Jack. Chomp the one to help. Chomp don't get the help. Chomp the one to 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 Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, as for us, of course, we are the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NetTwit1235. You can, of course, come aboard the Demolition Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down to the old Spotify and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, Head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying the thanks to Vanessa Kirby. I get to say this. As I'm getting older, I feel like maybe I need to grow up a bit. <laughs>
Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>